1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books in Sociology. I'm Sarah Patterson, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Amy Zitlow and Naomi Khan about their new book, Homeward Bound, Modern Families, Elder Care, and Loss. Welcome to the show. Thank you. We're delighted to be here. Thanks, Sarah. Great. Thank you for being here. I was wondering if you could tell us more about yourselves.
0: Sure. This is Amy Zitlow, and I am a pastor in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Um, I currently serve Holy Cross Lutheran here in Decatur, Illinois, in Central Illinois. And um, I'm also a scholar of end of life care. Um, I've worked extensively in hospice care as a chaplain, as also a chief operating officer and that background, both from parish ministry but also in hospice, which is what kind of drew me to work on this project,
2: which led to the book. And this is Naomi. I am a law professor at George Washington University Law School, and I teach a variety of courses. Um, Most the the most relevant courses are family law, trusts and estates, and elder law. And I've done a great deal of research in each of those areas. But some of my more relevant work in elder law has been looking at what happens to digital assets. Um, Upon our death that that is who's going to take care of our Facebook accounts, etc when we can no longer do so and a mutual friend of Amy's and mine knew about actually was involved in uh, getting the grant that 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 resulted in this project and um, uh, She knew of my work and she said to the two of us, you know it would be really useful for the two of you to get to know one another
0: Right, five or six years later, we're
1: still working. (laughs) Great. Well, that actually brings me to our first question, which is how this book came about.
0: Great. This is Amy. Um, So basically, the book came about from a phone call. And really, the first line of the book and the introduction is is a quote from that phone call from a mutual friend of ours named Julie, um, who called me when I was still working at Hospice of Baton Rouge. Um, And she had a question about her ex-stepmother. She was calling because her ex-stepmother was going to have surgery in the coming week. And in talking with her and just hearing more about what the procedure was going to be and uh, wondering what role she should play in all of that, um, she realized she had a lot of questions about her family, both realizing that both her mother and her father, as well as step-parents. Including ex-step parents um, are all kind of beginning to enter the years where they may be having healthcare crises. They may need healthcare support. Um, they may need her to play some role in terms of helping pay for their care and support. They may be thinking about retirement soon, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, and just realizing, wow, are there other daughters, stepdaughters? out there that are starting to think about these questions and what does that journey look like? Um, I knew from working in hospice for many years that, um, you know, families are, modern families are changing. You know, they, they don't, um, we can't just assume that a 60, 70, 80-year-old um, has been married for multiple decades and that, um, their first line of defense will be their spouse, and then the second line of caregiving um, would be grown children who have known those parents their whole lives. Um, but now we have, single, we have many single parents, whether that's by choice, by choosing not to be married or through divorce, um, or many parents who are remarried. And those dynamics change, uh, those family system dynamics change how people are making choices at the end of life or through a health care crisis. Um, and so at that point, we decided we wanted to study those families. We would want to interview other grown adults like Julie and find out from them what their experience was like in terms of providing care, making health care decisions, um, experiencing the end of life, and then how they dealt with mourning. How did they plan funerals? Um, how did they settle the estate of their parents or step-parents? Um, And so that was kind of the origin, both for the project, which then, of course, led to the book.
1: Great. Thank you. So one of the things that I wanted to talk more about was this idea of norms in these new family structures. So not only financial uh, norms, but cultural norms in these new modern families. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about that.
0: Right. I think right from the beginning, we realized we wanted to show that there's a new normal both a new normal in end-of-life care, but also a new normal in modern families. And those two right now, and especially over the next two to three decades, are going to be colliding or intersecting more and more. Um, on the one hand, there's been some great uh, advances in end-of-life care, both with increased access to hospice care at the end-of-life, but also Um, sort of an evolution from hospice care with palliative care that can be offered before someone would have a six-month prognosis. Um, But palliative care could happen at any time, um, but brings that hospice model of um, kind of interdisciplinary care from a physician and a nurse and a chaplain and social worker, but brings that and sees not only the patient as their person they're caring for, but their whole family system and helps them name their values, um, talk through um, what is most important to them so they can ensure that their health care is really meeting um, who they are as an individual and as a family. Right. So with that new normal, then you're meeting these other kind of family systems and those
2: two are colliding now, which
0: can be good, but is also new.
2: I, I just want to supplement a little bit Amy's wonderful description of some of the norms that we looked at. Uh, Amy's experiences as uh, both within the hospice context and also as a religious spiritual leader had led her to see a lot of the changes in the, the kinds of medical care, as well as in people's approaches to that medical care. And in addition, we looked at some of the legal norms that have not yet changed that assume a nuclear once and only married family. And then as as Amy said, we, we drew on the work of lots of sociologists who've been looking at changes in family structure and changes in, in gray divorce. I mean, here, here we're thinking of, of Susan Brown and Ethan Lind's work at Bowling Green, as well as, and we found this incredibly influential in our own work, on um, the, the research of Uh, the late Suzanne Bianchi and uh, uh, Judith Seltzer on aging and what happens to care within families. And what, what they found was that care within families can change as a result of changing family structures creating both tensions as well as new possibilities for connection. And so we were looking, uh, or or what we found actually, because we were looking to, we, we we conducted the interviews to find out what was happening, but we did find both the possibilities of new connections as well as the possibility of tensions.
1: Great, thank you. One of the interesting things that I found from the book was this idea of the pronouns that people use um, to illustrate their family structure, so for instance, we versus I or she.
0: Yes. No. That for me, this is Amy. One of the biggest aha moments from doing this project was the textual analysis of the interviews and seeing how the use of pronouns simply to tell your story changed um, based on family structure. So, um, to step back, just to give you a view of the interviews, these were two hour long interviews. They were qualitative. They were semi-structured. So the interviews follow the chronology of the book, kind of from when you become, looking at your family, doing a family drawing when you were a child, but then following, when did you become a caregiver? What did that look like? What kind of decisions did you have to make um, through the time of death? And then um, for the year, we interviewed people at the year anniversary after their parent or step-parent had died. So we followed that whole trajectory. And we knew that there would be rich um, insights there in terms of actual uh, process, you know, actual decisions they were making. How did, they, what laws did they know were there? How did they access those? But I, I guess I, it took a while for me to see as I was looking through the, the transcripts themselves to see the shift in these pronouns. So for, for grown sons and daughters whose parents were in their first and only marriage at the time one of them died. Their use of the pronoun we was pervasive. You know, when you would do a search for the pronoun we, the whole transcript would just light up in yellow. And you could just go through, um, I would go through and just count, you know, how many, just hundreds and hundreds of times that this um, son or daughter would use we to tell their story. We learned that dad had cancer. We decided to, um, that he would be admitted to hospice. We were there at his bedside when they removed life support. You know, we went to the funeral home. We, and all of those, um, kind of the stress and even there, I mean, every family has conflicts regardless of what the structure looks like, but they went through any of those arguments or debates or conversations. And a year after their mom or dad had died, they told that story as we We went through this. We are dealing with this. For those daughters and sons whose um, mother or father uh, was single at the time of their death, um, they almost, like the incidence of their use of the pronoun I jumped. There were still some we's, especially if they had some siblings or an aunt or an uncle that was involved, but their transcripts just lit up in yellow when you would search for the pronoun I. And so, you know, a year after that death, they're telling their story of, um, I learned from mom that she had cancer. I was at the, you know, at the doctor and I started taking a notebook and keeping track of mom's medication. Um, I decided she would be cremated. Um, so really just looking at how that kind of the responsibility and authority of making those decisions changes and they kind of move to a pinpoint on this one individual Then as we looked at the transcripts for those who were caring for a step parent or caring with a step parent, so caring for a mom or dad who was remarried that the incidence of using pronouns she or he to describe that process jumped um, up in terms of she called and said that he was going into hospice and she was going to do this. And he decided that we were going to use pink for, the casket, or he decided where she would be buried, um, and so there was a, that use of that third-person pronoun. It definitely communicated some distance. Sometimes that was healthy. Sometimes that was there was conflict there in terms of using that different pronoun. And for us, I think looking at kind of the big picture of the project, realizing we want more and more grown children, grown daughters and sons to go through the process telling their story with the pronoun we. And so that demands greater work on the part of professionals, whether that's clergy, lawyers, physicians, nurses, hospice personnel, whoever that is, um, in order to create the environment where more and more people can tell their story using we, um, where they can't just assume, well, this is my family and I've known them forever and so we are a we. We just have to do more work to help people be we and not I or he or she. Did you want to add anything, Naomi, to that?
2: No, I think that's a <laughs> great description of just sort of, of, of how the pronouns were were so important. I, I, I do have to acknowledge that that pronouns, uh, of course, um, uh, have a lot of different meanings these days I, I, in a lot of um Uh, I've done a lot of work at at the law school on gender identity issues, for example. But when, when when we saw the pronouns in these transcripts from interviews with people who were from Baton Rouge, the I and the we were just palpable signs of kind of familial norms of togetherness, of loneliness, of feeling a need for and actually having or not having connection with other family members as people experienced the elder care and loss aspects of their parents' and step-parents' lives.
1: Great. Thank you. So one of the other interesting things that popped up for me as a work family scholar is this idea of the costs of care. So not only the financial costs, but also the time that these adult children are providing to their parents. So I wondered if you could tell us more about that.
2: Sure. What um, Amy can talk more about, this is Naomi, more about what people actually said in the interviews. But one of the things we found is just how little support there actually is for caregivers and how infrequently the caregivers in our study accessed the the formal means, that is the legal means of support. Um, So some of the ways that people can get access for support, for example, are through the Federal Family and Medical Leave Act or through comparable state laws, which allow for a certain period of unpaid and no federal law says unpaid allow for a certain period of unpaid leave to care for the serious illness of another. Um, Now that works when it comes to parents who are experiencing a serious illness, but if they're experiencing a chronic sporadic illness that may not rise to the level of how federal law defines the requisite illness, then it might be difficult to use even that unpaid leave guarantee um, uh, uh, and if someone has not, if it's a step parent, someone who has not functioned in loco parentis during the child's lifetime, then even the unpaid leave is unavailable. So paying for, um, uh, mom or dad's, I'm sorry, taking leave to help mom or dad as they dealt with a um, even even their their married partners' illness uh, certainly when it came to their non married non marital partners' illnesses was not something that federal law would protect. Some states, not Louisiana, are more generous when it comes to paying for leave, but that that was not available. I should also note as as more of a context as opposed to something we saw in the study, because of course I am a lawyer. Um, Some states do provide for paid leave, as do some employers. Again, Amy can talk more about how specific people access this leave, but what we found was less of a formal utilization of the leave structures available and much more informal informal caregiving. Um, And we've also written about the importance of volunteer federally supported programs such as Meals on Wheels. And then in the book, we briefly mention issues involving elder abuse and again, the support for caregivers because caregivers really are on the front lines. They're the ones experiencing the stress of constant attention and guardianship for the people who are ill. Amy, do you want to talk a little bit more about the formality with which people access care? Right. I think
0: what we saw, like, for example, um, we talk about Brady and his family in that chapter two. His family was was very indicative of what many of the families would have to do, would be just informally gather. Brady, it was his father, um, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Brady's father had been married twice and was currently married at the time, but was estranged from that, that wife. And so he had brothers and sisters, half brothers, half sisters from, you know, from the two different marriages and then had a stepsister who was in between jobs at the time when Brady's father received this diagnosis and chose to be admitted to hospice care. And so she decided because she was in between jobs that she could move in with Brady's dad to be that kind of hands-on caregiver in in the home. And that was one goal that Brady's dad had was that he wanted to stay at home. He did not want to move in with one of his children. He definitely did not want to go into a nursing home or spend any time in the hospital. He wanted to be able to be at home. He lived out in the bayou and had a kind of rustic cabin and, um, So Brady found like he and his brother kind of took over more of the kind of instrumental kind of type care acts, taking care of the yard, making sure that he had wood for his fireplace, chopped, um, bringing groceries, uh, making sure that, you know, they, you know, were keeping the house clean, that kind of thing. And so then his stepsister moved in and was the person making sure that he was getting medications would be kind of the person there when the hospice personnel would come for visits and sort the eyes and ears for the whole family. And Brady's dad felt comfortable with that, but he did talk to Brady about, you know, even though she's here providing my care, I want you to be my decision maker. And so even through hospice had talked about um, a do not resuscitate order. And so I'd let Brady know I'm, you know, I'm asking the physician to have this order and I'm signing it. And I want you to know that because I want these are the kind of decisions I want made for me, um, which ended up really benefiting him and making sure that his wishes were followed. Because um, on the day that he died, he collapsed at home, and um, his stepdaughter was there, and that's a very stressful situation. She called nine one one. The ambulance came, and she realized as the ambulance was arriving and these uh, medical personnel were beginning to do CPR and to be able to you know do all of these acts to resuscitate him, you know, in the back of her mind, she's thinking, oh, wait, I don't, this is not what he wanted. So then she called Brady and said, you know, you've got to come and they're doing all these things. They're taking him to the hospital. And so when they arrived to the hospital, um, the doctor came in and talked with the family to say, you know, this is what's, what's going on. And every, you know, everyone's emotions are very high. And Brady was able to remind them to say, no, wait. Remember, Dad completed this DNR. This, he doesn't want to be hooked up to machines. he doesn't want a feeding suit. you know he doesn't want to be intubated. he doesn't want all these things. These are what his wishes were. And they were all able to step back for a moment and remember that and say, "You're right. That is what he wanted. He had filled out this paperwork. Um, and then they were all able to gather around the bedside and be able to be with him in the last hours of his life and feel that they were following what he wanted when he could not make those choices for himself. So that's kind of an interesting story of how both the formal planning that was was made access to through hospice kind of helped support that informal work that the family had to do to make sure that his care was provided, but also that his wishes were followed.
1: Great. Thank you. Um, So one of the other things that you bring up in the book is this idea of Um, planning for the end-of-life care and what can be done versus what families did in your book. So I wondered if you could tell us more about that.
2: Well, that's two different – this is Naomi – that's two different issues in terms of what the families did versus what can be done and what ideally should be done, two very, very different directions. In terms of what could be done, um, people can – plan for what happens to their medical care in case they are incapacitated with anything like um, uh, giving through through something called advanced medical directives, of course, which are available in every single state. You can delegate to someone else the power to make decisions on your behalf. Um, uh, You can set out your wishes with respect to end-of-life treatment um, Amy's already referred to DNRs, do not resuscitate orders that doctors can issue. So a lot of formal planning can take care in the medical context and in the legal context as well. Forget about wills, which, of course, everybody should have regardless of their assets, but um, Uh, People can also delegate financial decision making power to someone else through a power of attorney while they are alive. So if they're incapacitated and in the hospital, then someone else can take care of their financial issues through through a legal, a very simple legal form through a power of attorney. Um, uh, The issue is that. What half of the population doesn't have a will. Many of us don't think we actually need one. And in our in in the interviews, we found very, very few people whose parents actually had formal wills. There were a lot of, oh, I hope that X, Y and Z happens or I would like X, Y and Z to happen. But oral wishes are only as binding as The people to whom those oral wishes are conveyed actually listen. And what's what's interesting, this gets back to the I, we, the pronouns that Amy talked about earlier Um, in, in families where there were kind of strong communal family norms. The families generally agreed on what to do with relatively little acrimony. And a a will, while important in terms of, would have been important in terms of conveying the the dead parents' wishes, um, uh, was less important in terms of preventing rivalries between family members. By contrast, in today's new normal of divorced, remarried, repartnered, Families, it it does help um, it does help to have the individuals' wishes written down, and even when the wishes were were conveyed orally, that that was also helpful in terms of there being some respect given to what it was the 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 dead parent actually wanted. But but the importance. We found that it was so important where there had been formal planning in terms of providing guidance to those who survived.
0: Yes, I think both the chapters that cover um, medical decision making as well as settling the estate of the parent, you just see so clearly how difficult substitutive judgment is. Trying to make a decision thinking, what would mom have done? What would dad? like in this situation, um, is, is just incredibly hard for us to use that imagination and that kind of, or call it empathic imagination, um, to think through, okay, in this situation, what would dad have done? And as a society, um, because we, you know, we, as a whole, we don't do a great deal of planning for a healthcare crisis or for our, you know, after death, how do, how do we deal with our assets and our, um, that, you know, our legacy, we expect that the norms and shared history of family will will do the heavy lifting for us, you know, that they will just privately settle things out. They will, and, and we saw that, you know, that, um, families, especially if they're faced with, say, removing mom from life support, they will collectively talk together, About, well, remember when Aunt Susie, 10 years ago, she was in the hospital and dad said, oh, I never want to look, I never want to be like that. And around the table, yes, all the other cousins and the sisters and brothers can all say, I do remember that. I remember dad saying that. Um, Or even remember when we went to Uncle Joe's funeral and he said, oh, I want those songs. I love, I really like these songs. And so that gives them all confidence and clarity um, and a sense of safety that we're going to make this decision and other people uh, are concurring with me. They also know that this is the best decision. And so we saw for those families that don't have a long history together, say their dad was remarried for two years. Well, they don't have a shared history of spending holidays or remembering that I had chicken pox in seventh grade. You know, my, my dad's new spouse, I didn't even know her until two years ago. And I'm, you know, 48. <laughs> um, you don't have all of these shared family stories. And if you haven't really sat down and told those stories, then you don't even have a common memory of those. And it can, if you disagree or your personalities maybe don't gel with a new spouse or with new step siblings, then It's really easy to start sort of demonizing that other person as as maybe not making the best decisions. And so that's where that formal planning really did some heavy lifting for those families to be able to say, no, wait, here is objectively what dad wanted um, or who he wanted to be making decisions for him. And And he said, I want you to rally behind this person and support them. They know what I want to do. Um, So, you know, provide emotional support for them. Um, We found definitely in those um, where there was not planning, which was frankly, most of the people, the majority of people that we interviewed had not done any formal planning. We looked at kind of the different roles, especially for the decision to remove life support or as many of our interviews called it, pulling the plug, Um, what helped support them through that. And we did find that religion, both religious practices as well as uh, religious beliefs, helped support the, for the most part, for the grown daughter or son who had to make those decisions. Um, that was a resource that they turned to, um, to help guide them and feel confidence and clarity in that moment when they needed to make that decision.
1: Thank you. So unfortunately, the parents eventually pass away and you move into this discussion of grieving um, during this life course transition. And one of the interesting things that you talk about is how the roles change after the parent passes away. So I wondered if you could tell us more about that. Well, I think um, from the start, I think one thing we,
0: we were looking for resilient family systems. What contributes to family systems that are resilient through a crisis and through a loss when one member is now gone through death? And the four factors that we saw were um, that the grown child saw that the experience was understandable. You know, they understood what was happening and they understood what role they were going to play through that process. Um, That there was some way that they saw that the process was manageable. They could do something. They could pay for something. They could show up and bring dinner or they could come to the hospital and sit vigil. You know, there was something they could do to be um, playing a role during that time. And then ultimately that they saw that the experience was meaningful, that there, this was something that was worthwhile, that honoring their parent or being there with them was uh, a meaningful part of their story and a meaningful part of their kind of family, that this is what families do, this is what a daughter does or a stepdaughter does in this. And then ultimately looked at, in terms of resilience, who is still in contact a year after the death of the mom, dad, or step-parent. And so keep in mind, we were interviewing people at that year anniversary. So as we looked at that transition from being a caregiver to a griever, we were listening for um, who is still in contact with the parents or the parent figure, you know, the widow um, after this death. For those families where the widow is also your mom or their dad, um, they were in constant contact. You know, they were experiencing um, you know, the first birthday or the first holidays together and you know were finding ways to mark the anniversary of the death, um, usually with their with their widowed mom or their widowed dad. Sadly, for a lot of those in remarriages, that worked to stay in connection was harder. They had to be more intentional about reaching out or still including that widowed step-parent or the widowed boyfriend of their parent in, you know, family involvement and needed to be more intentional about how are we going to still be a family and do we want to still be a family? And I think if there's anywhere where there's, there needs to be probably more, well, there's lots of places where there needs to be more research, but I think, and looking at how do families remain a family when the connector parent is now out of the picture? Um, what, what helps contribute to that? Um, because to me that was one place where I saw for our grown daughters and sons, there was a lot of loneliness in that year of grieving when it it took more effort to grieve with a widowed step parent.
2: I think this is Nami. We did find a need for a great deal more research in this area, and I know Sarah, you're you're doing work on um, children's transfer to parents and differing family structures, right?
1: Yes, that's right.
2: Um, and and I think that work that work of looking at how family structures affect all kinds of transfers transfers of money transfers of care is incredibly important research that um that still needs to be done as 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 family structures change so dramatically i mean we were incredibly influenced by looking at the demography that um almost half of american families are getting close to a half of american families have at least one step relative, at least um, approximately a third of American families have um, a step or half sibling in them. Uh, uh, 20% of families have a living step parent. And what happens to those families when the connecting parent dies? Or what happens even when the step parent dies does everybody still stay in touch with each within with each of the different families? And so it was um, fascinating. And and ultimately, uh, we, we are we, we, we are not neutral or we did not become neutral observers, I guess, at the end, because I think we find it, it definitely um, uh, to the people that we interviewed, the tensions that and, and I, I, I get. I guess I, let, let me qualify that we, we were neutral, the people that we were talking to were not neutral about these trends, and how profoundly hurt they still were often a year after the death.
1: Great, thank you. Uh, one of the interesting things that I think you point out in the book about mourning is this idea that it becomes a public notice, um, for instance, with obituaries. So I wondered if you could tell us more about how, um, you know, different family structures Uh, did this process?
0: So we actually met everyone that we interviewed first through an obituary. So the way that we found folks to interview, um, I was living in Baton Rouge at the time. And so um, based on kind of socioeconomic background, as well as cultural backgrounds, we we based things in um, Baton Rouge, also in part because conducting these qualitative interviews in person, we thought would be the best, best way to do those interviews. So uh, we read the Baton Rouge Advocate, which is the one newspaper for Baton Rouge, and uh, read through the obituaries from every day for, I believe it was nine months. And we were looking for, uh, we wanted to make sure that the deceased was uh, within the baby boomer demography. So at the time, um, this was anyone under 70 years of age at that time. And um, we listed all of their uh, children, spouse, and stepchildren. And then contacted them to find out if they would would do an interview. So it was interesting, just even looking at kind of the structural analysis of how to write an obituary and where you put people. So you know, a spou- in even listing family members, if you are married, your spouse is almost always ninety nine percent of the time listed first, and then your biological children. And then at that point, the choices to be made of whether, whether and how you include if you have any stepchildren or children from previous marriages. Do you list an ex spouse? There were obituaries where people would mention an ex spouse. And kind of how those decisions were made about how you would want to present your family. Um, in the book, uh, we talk with one young man who they chose to use the obituary to present a picture of their family that they wanted to see. So they listed, he said, you know, even though there were brothers and sisters from two or three different women, um, he considered himself an quote unquote outside child, which would be someone who was born, but not part of a not part of the marriage. And, but he chose, they chose to just list everyone as children. Now that was the same obituary, and we actually have it in the book. Where um, at the time of his father's death, um, he was had a girlfriend, and so they list her, but at the far far at the end. And you think, well, if they were married, she of course would be listed first. But here, she's listed as I think like a longtime companion, so and so. So just interesting how even family structure, you can see the changes in our modern families. They're just simply reading through obituaries. The other piece we found there, did you want to add anything about obituaries, Naomi? Well,
2: just um, there there are books written about the meaning of obituaries and uh, a literature that I mean, it shows if, if you parse through the obituaries, as Amy said, it, it very nicely shows different relationships. And to the extent people are able to do that, the obituary sometimes reflected uh, people's own writing styles. As, as well as the family structure and today with the, the creativity that can be exhibited in, in obituaries we we didn't find this as, as much in the interviews but it's not just the formal obituary through which um, the study participants were found that, that were published but there's also an increasing literature of course of online obituaries, obituaries of mem- memorializing people through facebook obituaries and so obituaries just are, are so revealing on so many different levels about family structure, as well as about the individuals who are crafting them. And um, the, the, the different, because we were able to talk to people who were involved in writing the obituaries, the different tensions that actually occurred as the obituaries were being written.
0: So as we, when you read through the transcripts, um, you also see that, the time of death is recalled in high levels of detail. Um, people can read. It's almost as though they're watching a movie in their mind and simply allowing themselves to just say every single thing that they remember from who was speaking, where people sat, everything at that point, sort of the nature of the storytelling really shifted in terms of, um, the, the funeral and obituary, things are remembered more spatially, uh, broad strokes, even unless someone brought a bulletin or brought a remembrance from the funeral, unless they spoke at the funeral, many people couldn't even remember who spoke at the funeral. If they had a scripture or a poem or a reading, they didn't necessarily remember. They remembered that something was read, but they didn't remember what. They didn't remember any details about what was included in any messages, but they remembered faces. They remembered where people were, and what we found most um, interestingly, that also led into whether or not people would see kind of legal action in terms of the estate, was where people sat. So I realized, as a clergy member who also works a lot with funeral homes, um, we presume you know you keep the first row open row of seating, whether that's in the funeral home or in in a faith community in a sanctuary, the first pew or the first row is where the family sits. Well, nowadays people have a lot of family. And if the deceased is remarried, um, we traditionally would say, well, the spouse will be sitting in that front row. Well, what we found is that oftentimes the spouse would sit in that front row, but then they would bring their children who would happen to be the stepchildren of the deceased as well as maybe their sister and their other family members, which would push back the biological children of the deceased to the second row or even the third or fourth row. And for those families where there was already some tensions or not a great deal of shared warmth amongst themselves, that remembrance of sitting and looking at the back of the head of your stepmother did not sit well. And that, I think that memory, that spatial memory of where you sat and feeling uh, disenfranchised, feeling disconnected from your dad who had died and that you were not sitting in a place of honor was very difficult um, as a clergy member i'm now far more mindful of that as i'm you know, working with a family to plan their memorial service or their funeral um, to ensure where do people want to sit and how can we make sure that that's happening um, and so in the book we even include a funeral seating home chart to sort of work through with your family to think about where people can sit
2: we also, I mean, that that's in one of the appendices to the book. Another appendix, another appendix to the book, um, actually has a bereavement interview tool because we found that that, I mean, grief uh, time does not, uh, uh, although time passes, the 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 grief um, can st- is is still there and the tensions are still there often a year after the death. And so the, the tool is designed to help with processing some of those emotions. And th- this came out, I mean, as, as we worked through the interviews, as we wrote the book, as we looked at people's experiences, these two appendices grew organically out of that as, um, as, as a means for guidance.
1: Great, thank you. Um, you move into this discussion of wealth transfers within families and how that's negotiated with new family forms. And I thought Nancy had a really interesting story, so I was wondering if you could tell us more about that.
0: Yes. So Nancy's um, was served as "quote unquote" the next of kin for her mother, um, as she had a stroke following. Well, she had a stroke, and then she had surgery, and then there were complications after the surgery, and so. She was faced with having to remove life support for her mother. Well, her mother um, had been married twice, um, once to Nancy's father and then to um, another man who basically was in their household through her teen years, and she has a half-brother from that marriage, and then they divorced, and her mother was in a long-time relationship with a gentleman named William, over 10 years, her boyfriend. They lived together. And she knew when they were in the hospital um, at the time, they had to make some difficult decisions about her mom's care. And because they were not married, that responsibility fell to Nancy and her siblings. She wanted to include William in those conversations, um, but she knew because she had talked to her mother about what she would want for life support. Um, She knew what decisions her mom wanted to make and those were not necessarily the decisions William wanted to make. So it's an interesting part where we really hear her thought process in terms of wanting to respect William and the longtime relationship he's had with her mom, but also then advocate for what she knew her mom wanted and what her mom had told her she wanted. And then after her death, um, she immediately begins planning for the service. And um, making all the decisions her mom wanted to be cremated. And so she goes home and she knew her mom's filing system was just this kind of kind of dresser drawers of papers. And so just begins going through. And she actually finds um, a, a form or a paper that her mom wrote out um, that included her information about, I don't want to be on life support and I want to be cremated uh, where she wanted her ashes to be scattered. And she included in there, if uh, William and I are still together at the time of my death, I would like him to have $2,000 from my life insurance policy. Well, at the time, Nancy also couldn't find the life insurance policy. So at the time, because they, they needed to have, the, have the, the memorial service and proceed with the cremation, she put all of it on her credit card and just figured, you know, we'll find the life insurance policy in time and then, then we'll figure everything out. So she did that. Eventually she did find the policy and her mother had actually already uh, taken a loan against the life insurance policy. So it was a $10,000 policy and it was now down to 7,000. And so she talked with her brothers. They were the beneficiaries of the the policy. Um, She, their brother, her brothers gave her money to cover her expenses for the cremation and the service. And then she said, you know, mom wanted William to have $2,000. Let's, you know, let's do that, and then you all. If there's anything left, you all, you all can have it. Um, so there, there was some formal planning, but it was done very informally, and it took a lot of effort on the part of Nancy um, to find those policies and, you know, find this paperwork and, and honor it.
2: And I, I, this is Naomi um, as a lawyer here. We, we actually, um, the, the questions in the initial interview tool were not designed to look at wealth transfer, but it was an issue that came up in, in the interviews. And what's particularly interesting about Nancy's story is that Nancy fought to do the right thing. Her mother had written down her wishes, so it was in her mother's handwriting it was a letter, but her mother had made four copies of her of, of this letter that in, in which she wanted William to get two thousand dollars. Nancy seems, as, as we note in the book, not to have recognized, that legally this probably was a binding obligation because Louisiana is like about half of the states that recognize that you can write a will in your own handwriting and sign it and as long as it's signed in in your own handwriting and and states vary as to just how much of it needs to be in your own handwriting. Um, But certainly if the whole thing is in your own handwriting and you've signed it and it's your will with your wishes, it is a legally binding document. And someone could go to court based on this letter and say, this isn't just a letter, this is a will, this is a holographic, this is a written will, this is a handwritten will. It doesn't need all of those formalities that we normally associate with wills. That is, it doesn't need to be, um, you know, sort of formally typed with witnesses. Uh, Wills don't even need to be notarized, but it doesn't need all of those formalities. It can be the, a holographic will can take the form of a letter. Like what Nancy's mother wrote, and so her mother seemed to have recognized the importance of stating her wishes in this form. Nancy recognized the importance of respecting her mother's wishes in this way. Uh, many in in most of the other families, as as we've said, there were there were. Not such even informal documents um uh, in terms of what the parents actually wanted to have happen nancy's story as as you noted is particularly interesting for the intersection of both the the formal legal mandate that was there as well as the informal norms
1: thank you, so one of the um unexpected outcomes of the book was that you come to these helpful steps for families that are going through this, especially emphasizing planning in such an era of shifting family structures and roles. So I wondered if you could tell us more about that part of your book.
0: For me, one aha moment was that the role of an ex-spouse is changing, especially as um, the baby boomer generation who were the first to kind of divorce in in a widespread way, um, and are also, even as they're aging, um, continuing to divorce, that there may not be negativity between um, ex-spouses. Um, we saw that in those families where there was an ex-spouse, and about 40% of them, that ex-spouse played some role in helping care for their ex-husband or ex-wife, um, especially when their grown child was stepping into the primary caregiver role. Um, they they um, did not insert themselves in a, a very expressive way in terms of making decisions on behalf of their ex spouse, um, but they would kind of be in the background both as an emotional support, but would be making meals or would provide transportation or would come stay at the house while their son went to work during the day to just make sure that there weren't any emergencies. Um, and for those individuals who were deceased who did advance planning uh, before their death in terms of a will. Um, there were incidences where they, um, incident where they would name an ex spouse in their will. And for that, um, for the grown son for whom that happened, that was really meaningful to him that his dad wanted to honor his mom in that way through his will. And that just reminded him, we, we are, we are a family. And that he wanted to honor his ex-wife as well as his current wife in his will. So that was one piece, I think, in terms of we can't just presume that people don't want to have anything to do with each other after um, a divorce, but that even the nature of being ex-spouses is changing.
2: The the importance of family support, uh, the importance of planning. All of these, I mean, as as we look through, the the goal of the whole project was to look at how family structure is changing the nature of elder care. And so the, the last question that people were asked had to do with what advice they would give others. And so this last chapter builds on the advice that the study participants would give other people. And it also, I have to say, builds on Amy's expertise our, our, as a religious leader and my expertise as a law professor.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much for both of you being here today. I wondered if you could tell us more about what you guys are working on right now. This is, this is Naomi. One of the things I'm, I'm working on
2: uh, is an issue on family structure and economic inequality. Uh, I'm working on the coming era of gender inequality. And then a project that grows directly out of my work with Amy on this book is looking at legally what happens to a will, to a life insurance policy, et cetera, when someone is divorced. Because the law is moving towards saying, well, that document automatically writes out the ex-spouse and all family members of the ex-spouse. And the empirical work with with Amy that has led me to suggest some law reform, and I'm I'm writing um, an article about that. And um, I'm an active pastor, so
0: I think right now my main goals are sort of applying this lesson to my day-to-day practice as I'm working with families and um, as we're planning worship and going through funerals with families and hospital visits. Um, so that's my main work right now.
2: And also, Amy, your your other project on uh, advanced planning?
0: Yes, there are some work, work groups that are you know working on how do we build on the insights of the pulse form, the physician's order for life sustaining treatment, um, that would expand that beyond kind of the terminal window. You know right now, the pulse form is wonderful, and I think that's one of our recommendations at the end of the book because that's in your chart. And um, medical professionals, um, including physicians, follow doctors' orders. And so if you want certain things to happen when you can no longer make decisions for yourself, that's, that's really the best um, chance you have for having your wishes followed. But even the pulse is really only effective in the last six months to a year, or when a physician feels that um, the end of your life could be soon, sooner rather than later. And really that should, you know, the effectiveness of that order, could be much broader. And so there are some working groups I'm, I'm with right now that are working on how do, how do we expand that reach.
1: Those sound like really great projects. Thank you again for speaking with me today and thank you to our listeners.
2: Thank you so much for your incredibly careful reading of the book and for your incredibly thoughtful questions. We appreciate the having a soci, engaging with a sociologist on these issues. Definitely. Thank you.
1: Great. Thanks again.